This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So tonight, what I want to talk about is a key theme, which is that the crisis in the church is ultimately a crisis of faith. And my suggestion is going to be that the crisis of faith is ultimately a crisis of faith in the Bible as the word of God. So when we wrote our new book, Biblical Answers to 10 Pressing Questions about Catholicism, we wrote this for that purpose. That today, many people are walking away from the Catholic faith. Right? Many older people, younger people, and middle-aged people are distancing themselves from the church and from Christianity. One of the largest, fastest growing religious groups in America right now are the nuns, not the religious kind, right? But the N-O-N-E-S, right? Not religiously affiliated. We're really witnessing a post-Christianization or de-Christianization of a massive scale. So how do we respond? What I would, what we'd like to do is suggest that if we can recover a faith in the Bible, we can recover a faith in really God and in Christ and ultimately a faith that will lead us back to the church. And what we want to do is suggest that in a way, when we can begin to discern the meaning of the Bible right? Life can be richer, faith stronger, more meaningful when we immerse ourselves in scripture. Now, before we look at some specific questions and objections, I want to suggest three ideas for kind of reimagining, reconceiving our relationship with the Bible as the word of God. So, but if we're going to receive the Bible, let's think about the Bible as the word of God. Now, the word in Latin is verbum and in Greek is logos. Uh, so theologos, theology, are words about God. But it's also not just word. It's really speech, reason, discourse, story, language. Right? What distinguishes human beings from animals is that human beings have logos, they have speech, they have language, they tell stories. Um, as Nietzsche likes to point out, this means that they can tell lies. Right? Animals are very bad liars. Um, okay, so let's think about, I want to suggest three things. I want us to think about the Bible as a language. I want us to think about the Bible as a story. And I want us to think about the Bible as an answer. All of these as kind of images of the logos, the word, right? Language, story, answer. So first, learning the Bible. Can everybody hear me in the back? Is that fine? Okay. Um, so learning the Bible is like learning a language, right? Learning a language is complicated. If somebody walks in the room here speaking a language that I don't know, I actually have a hard time knowing whether or not they're speaking a language or speaking gibberish. Right? Because I don't understand it. It turns out the language is fully intelligible to them and is full of meaning and wisdom. Right? Human experience, human story. But to me, it doesn't have any sense because I haven't learned the language. 
And what I want to suggest is that many people, when they approach the Bible, they're in that situation. Even if they happen to recognize that the language is German or Spanish, if they don't speak it, it still doesn't mean anything. Many people who believe that the Bible is true still don't genuinely take meaning from it because they haven't been able to learn the language. Now, when we go to learn a language, we need to learn its grammar. We need to learn vocabulary. uh, We need to begin to learn what it sounds like, how to speak it. We also have to learn maybe key historical events, key people. If you want to learn, right, American English, at some point you have to understand what the Super Bowl is. You have to know who Tom Brady is. Um, You have to know what 9-11 was, right? All sorts of different events that shape our understandings. Well, same with the Bible. The Bible has its own grammar, its own set of stories, its own set of key people. And often today, we really don't know that much about them. So when, for instance, the angel comes to Joseph in a dream, right, and says that, you know, you will marry is with child with the Holy Spirit and his son will be a son of David and he will be the savior of the people. Well, if we don't really know a lot about David, that's not really very meaningful to us. It would be more meaningful if he said he's going to be the next Tom Brady, right? He's going to be the next goat of basketball or whatever it is. Then we would, oh, I understand now. So much of the reference and the stories, we just don't understand because we're cut off from it. So that's the first thing is we really want to think about what does it mean to learn the language? And by the way, if you've ever studied a language, right, how many people here studied a language in high school? Okay. How many people here can actually communicate in that language that they learned in high school? Say like, so I would say most of us are kind of like that often, even with the Bible. Maybe we did study the Bible. Maybe we know something about the Bible, but we can't communicate in it. So when we go to God or we go to God kind of on our own resources or with our own ideas, but we don't really go with the actual communication that he has spoken to us in the scriptures. So that's number one. Number two, uh, what? let's think about this notion of the Bible as story. Now, I want us to think for a moment about what is the story of your life? What is the story that you tell yourself about your life? Is it a story, perhaps, that you're not good enough? Is it a story that you're too good? You're so good, you don't need to change, or you're so bad that you can't. Is it a story that if only other people were different in your life, things would be better. If only your bosses, your teachers, your girlfriends, your parents, your siblings treated you differently, then life would be good, right? We often have a lot of complex stories about ourselves, but in many ways in the Bible, we find the greatest story, right? The story that in a way our lives are more complex than we thought than we thought they were at first. In the Bible, we learn that we were children of God who have lost our identity. We've had our identity stolen. Worse than that, we find out that we were the culprits. Like Esau in the Old Testament, we sold our birthright for a bowl of porridge when we were famished and hungry. Or maybe like the prodigal son in the New Testament, we asked for our father's inheritance so we could go spend it on our 
passions or use it to try to manage our fears. So the Bible then begins to tell us our true story, right? That we were actually created to be in communion with God as God's children. Because of sin, we have broken that communion. God informing his people with Israel and then ultimately in Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection provides a way to restore that communion. St. Catherine of Siena would say, right, we became separated from God across a river that we could not cross. But Christ built a bridge across that river. But we have the choice to walk across. Right? God does not force us. So we learn, right, that our real story is actually an invitation. J.R.R. Tolkien, a Catholic who wrote Lord of the Rings, said that the best stories are those stories in which we would love to live. Right. When you're reading a book or even watching a show, you don't want it to end. It's sad when the final credits come up or when the book when you get to the last page, because somehow that story is more interesting than daily life. Well, what Tolkien said is the gospel is that greatest story. It's the story in which we'd love to live, but we actually do. We're invited, right? It's why the Acts of the Apostles has such a bad ending. It just stops because we're meant to kind of continue to live in that story. So then the last one I suggested is language, stories, now answers, the questions about the, I, the problem I think a lot of people do is when we, they think about the Bible having answers, they think about the Bible in a way having answers to questions they don't have. We kind of, it's like having uh, somebody trying to scratch an itch that you don't have. It's just unpleasant, right? And so if the Bible's answering questions that I don't have, I don't really want to hear those answers. But I think, again, we have to understand that the deepest answers the Bible holds are the ones that we most need to hear. So when we set up this book, we tried to pose it with questions. Take questions that people have, questions that we found doing sociological research or looking at studies that other people had done about people that were leaving the church or other things. And we began to try to think about what are these questions and how can we show that the Bible answers the questions that we have deep in our hearts? Now, when we do this, I also want to talk about this because I think that asking questions, being involved with other people, allowing other people to ask questions is often complicated. Maybe if you've been raised in a Catholic family, you might sometimes people will feel embarrassment or shame when they ask questions about what does it really mean or why does the church teach that? You might feel awkward asking a priest, why do we do these things? So we often have genuine questions that come up that we don't ever really get good answers to. So what I want to say sometimes is when we are really getting to know other people or asking other people or learning, we should not be afraid to ask questions, but we also should not be afraid of other people's questions, right? There are times when we need to, as a friend said to me once, right, I need to take the cotton out of my ears, right, and put it in my mouth, right, to learn to listen to the other person and create friendships and conversations where the other person can ask genuine questions. But genuine questions are in search of an answer. And often what we find is that the Bible asks some of the same questions that are on our hearts. Psalm 8 is a beautiful example. It says, right, what is the son of man that you are mindful of him? Right? 
or man that you care for him and yet you have made him little less than the angels. Well, the Bible looks at the, I mean, the ancients looked at the huge world and said, who am I? And yet they asked those questions, but we found answers. So we want to suggest this idea that the Bible has answers, right, to the questions that are deepest in our hearts, right? Who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose? What is my story? Right, and to do that, we have to learn the language of scripture. The answers aren't simple, but again, neither are the questions. So I think many people, because the answers aren't easy, they cease trying to find them. So I wanna give a few examples of people that have found the answers in scriptures to kind of encourage us, our, our own little kind of goats of the Christian life. St. Teresa of Avila, a Spanish Carmelite, uh, wrote, she wrote this in her autobiography. She said that all the harm that comes to the world comes from its not knowing the truths of scripture and clarity and truth. It's a pretty big claim, right? The heirs of the world that we see come from not knowing the truths about scripture. Again, what would it mean to even be in a situation where that would be intelligible? I think a lot of times we think that the Bible today is not really trustworthy. It's incoherent. It's old. It's all, it's all these different things. But we kind of go, no, languages are like that, too. Languages are weird, odd, incoherent at times, but over time you begin to see that they speak meaningfully. So the Bible, again, may have things that are strange and odd, and it's written over thousands of years by lots of different authors, but we begin to see it's a common story spoken by God to his people for our salvation. And these are the truths we need to know. St. John Paul II wrote this. In his fetus oratio, a vision, the Bible offers us a vision of a human being in the world which has exceptional philosophical density. Now, if you ever read John Paul II, you know he was a kind of a great philosopher and liked to speak oddly at times. So fundamentally, what does he mean when he says it's a vision of great philosophical density? What he really wants to say is it's true. Right? The Bible is true. If you want to know the truth about what it means to be human, what it means, and the truth about God, we'll find it in the Bible. Pope Benedict, the 16th emeritus pope, wrote this. And he wrote, he was probably the uh, most learned theologian, perhaps almost we've ever had as a pope. And he wrote a lot on biblical theology, but he summarized his view on scripture in four words. I trust the gospels. After studying all the 200 years of historical critical stuff. That's the fundamental thing he walks with. I trust the gospels. And then Pope Francis says this, when we, when we, sorry, we need to let God speak to us in the Bible. The prayerful reading of God's word enables us to pause and listen to the voice of the master. So we don't want to get into simply the ability external argument over whether or not God wrote the Bible or not, or how that interacts with human beings, which is a fascinating question. But then we're looking at the Bible. At other times, we need to look along the Bible and let's listen along the Bible, right? Let's listen in a way to God speaking. That's really much more important. So in the book, we look at 10 questions. Um, tonight, we're going to take five and uh, go from there. So 
What I want to begin with is this question, why believe in God and in Jesus Christ? Kind of the most foundational question, right? Is there a God and is he revealed in Jesus Christ? And in many ways, when you look at what people object to these issues, they usually talk about three key areas. Number one, that there, God does not exist, right? That the progress of science as they understand it has made God now no longer a tenable hypothesis. Number two, God exists but is not personal. Uh, somebody did a study at the Pew Research Center, and over 50% of Catholics say that they believe in a God who is not personal. Right? They don't believe in a personal God. There's a God behind the universe, but he's not personal. Third, there is the concern that God exists, and he may be personal, right? but he doesn't take care of me. My life is filled with suffering. My family members are filled with suffering. And how can I have a relationship with a God who allows such hurt and hardship? So these are, this is kind of the, these are the key objections in a way. So how does the Bible begin to address these questions? Well, I want to say in a way, in a rather kind of coherent and consistent manner, as God is first revealed in the Old Testament and then in the New. So in a way, does God exist? Well, when we get to Moses's great kind of encounter with God in Exodus, Exodus 3.14, Moses says, right, what is your name, right? What is your name that I may lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? And God says to him, right, I am who am. He reveals his name to him as I am. What does it mean to say I am? Well, in many ways, what he's really sharing there is that I am the creator. I am being itself. God, as we understand in a way, is a verb. He's more like a verb than a noun because to be God is to be simply being. It also means if God is the I am, then everything that exists in this world receives its existence from God. The stars, the bunnies, the trees, you and I all receive our existence from God, who is existence itself, right? I exist as a man, right? Bunnies exist as bunnies. Trees exist as trees. Stars exist as stars. But God simply exists as existence. And out of his existence, he gives it to creatures. So God exists. And the fact that anything exists is a sign, right, that God exists as the cause of that, so that's the first idea. Romans will also say that from the visible things of the world, we can reason to the invisible creator. But number two, the world isn't only orderly, the world is also rather broken. When Moses gets this message, by the way, his people are enslaved in Egypt. So the Bible is very clear about brokenness of both cultural, historical, and personal. So at one point in the story, 
We need to know more than that God is the creator. We need to discover God is the redeemer. So Moses says, right, show me your glory. This is actually after the people had built the golden calf and all, all and kind of messed everything up. But nonetheless, he says, show me your glory. So God says to him, I can't pass by. You can't see my face, but I'll pass by and you can just see my glory. So he passes him by. And this is what Exodus says. It says, the Lord, the Lord, the merciful and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. So first we discover that God is being itself. He's the creator. Now we know God is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. God's mercy flows to our misery. That's the key point. So God is not only the creator, now he's personal and he cares. His mercy flows to our misery. Nonetheless, of course, how will his mercy flow to our misery? And here we see the third step in this. Because the next time we hear the I am statements are in, um, well, actually they show up a bunch in Isaiah as Isaiah is prophesying what's going to happen. But the next time they show up is in Jesus. And Jesus seven times says, I am, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the gate. I am the true vine. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. He takes to that name of I am from Moses, God the creator, and he claims it as his own, which is why we understand that, right, Jesus Christ is the son of God. But he also says this last one. Probably the most shocking is, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, at first, that's kind of exciting. Jesus is the resurrection until we notice what has to happen first. Jesus can only be the resurrection if he dies. So now we see not only is God the creator and the redeemer, but he's also going to become the sufferer, the one who suffers. So God sees that we suffer And what we discover in the Bible is that God chooses to enter into our suffering. So in part, this is why we decided to write this first chapter, not just on why believe in God, but why believe in God and in Jesus Christ. The world without God is not enough, but God without Jesus is not enough. I don't just need a creator, right? I need a savior. And I don't just need an Savior from the outside, I need a Savior who has entered into the depths of my suffering and brokenness. And I think in many ways we see in our culture today, right, many, many people that are struggling with brokenness and they see God as distant. What they don't see is that God entered into that brokenness so that henceforth no one need ever die alone. No one ever be broken alone. No one ever be distraught alone, right? Christ has entered into our own suffering and redeemed it. Paul, at the end, will summarize the good news of Christianity in Romans 10. If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord, namely the truth of the incarnation, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. Number two, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, the resurrection, right? So that God, Jesus who is God entered into our death, but came out through resurrection. Then he says, you will be saved, right? You will begin to participate in the healing that God is offering. 
So that's the first kind of key question uh, that we look at. Um, the next question we raise is why listen to the church? Right? It would seem it's hard enough to believe in God. It's hard enough to believe in Jesus. It's even harder to believe in the church, right? Why would, right? Okay, maybe God would speak through Jesus, but why would he want to speak through a bunch of human beings? And the problem in some ways is that none of us want to listen to anyone. We really just generally as human beings like to figure things out for ourselves, right? I don't know how many times um, I've been in a conversation with someone um, and sometimes like, You'll, you'll notice that I say something and the other person will say something, especially if they're like a child of mine, they'll say no. And then they'll repeat what I said back to them as if it were their idea and they like it. Um, right. It's a strange sense. We don't like being told what to do. Kind of obedience is for children and dogs. Right. You know, so like obedience isn't really fun. But what I want to suggest is that we have to think about. There is something about obedience that we profoundly misunderstand in the modern world. We tend to think of obedience as a, the submission of a weaker person to a more powerful person. And therefore, to be obey is to lose our freedom. But I think this is profoundly mistaken. Right? We really want to see obedience in its kind of Latin and Greek roots as hearing, listening to. Ab adiare, right? To listen under, to listen to. Um, so obedience in a way is really not a question of will and submission. It's a question of intelligence and learning. Somebody who hears what others have to say can learn from them. So when we begin to be able to hear what God says, we can learn from God who is teaching. So I said before, the world without God is not enough. God without Jesus is not enough. And I would suggest that Jesus without the church is not enough. We wouldn't know Jesus but for the church who has communicated Jesus to us. The church comes to us primarily in scriptures and the sacraments. Right, the Bible and the sacraments and everything else that goes into making that possible is really the way that Christ encounter Christ comes to meet us in the church. So again, we want to think of this. When we think of hearing and speaking, we want to imagine if we're lost in the woods and somebody says, right, come follow me. I know a way out. Right? We're excited to hear those words. We don't feel that they're oppressive, right? Those words are freeing because we realize it's my intelligence that allows me to do that. Um, the amazing thing, by the way, is that when God calls his people Israel to follow him, when he liberates them from slavery to Pharaoh, God's much more powerful than Pharaoh, right? He's shown that through the plagues. He could easily enslave Israel. But what does he do in Exodus uh, 19? Right? He says, if you keep if you keep my commandments right you can be my people right he invites them he says right will you marry me will you be my people he doesn't overpower them overwhelm them enslave them he invites them into a free relationship so god in a way through his speech is inviting us 
to return his love in freedom. So, and again, one of the things we see is this obedience in scriptures is often an intelligent obedience. When God calls Abraham, he simply calls Abraham and then he doesn't tell him much. He has to figure out a lot on his own. He calls him again. He has to figure out more on his own. When God calls Mary, you know, that's it. He just kind of says, okay, are, are, will you be the mother of the Savior? Yes, be it done to me according to thy word. Wouldn't it have been nice if he said then, by the way, in a couple of years, you're going to have to, soon you're going to have to go to Egypt. Just be prepared. Don't buy, you know, rent. Um, and then, by the way, when you go to Egypt, rent again because you're going to have to come back. And then, by the way, when Jesus is 12, just so you know, don't get mixed up in the caravan, like, because you're going to walk for a day and then you're going to have to walk back to go find him. Mary gets nothing. Mary simply says, will, God says to Mary, will you do this? And she says, yes, be it done to me according to thy word. And then she and Joseph have to use all of their own intelligence to creatively respond to God's call. When we obey the church, we're really simply hearing the message of salvation coming to us. What does the church say to us? The church fundamentally says, right, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. The church helps us to become, makes us really children of God. The church says, I absolve you of your sins in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. The church allows us to encounter the forgiveness of sins, right? When we talk about listening to the voice of the church, we're not talking about the church's policies on parking. If you got a parking ticket from a church, that doesn't mean, you know, you should leave the church, right? It does mean you should probably park somewhere else, right? Or it doesn't mean disagreeing with the latest rules on COVID that the bishop sets up. No, the point is, is that we need to discover the truth that is communicated to us from God through uh, Jesus, through the church. Now, I want to highlight three images in scriptures where we see this. The first is that um, Jesus is, extends his teaching to the church. When Jesus sends out his apostles, it's interesting, even when Jesus was alive, don't you think sometimes it'd be like easier if I could just have seen Jesus? Well, you notice most of the people in Jesus' time didn't get to see Jesus. Jesus just visited a few villages and then he sent out his 12 and he sent out 72 apostles and disciples two by two. So most of the people in Jesus' age didn't get to see him. They heard about him through others. But when he sends them out, he says this, he who hears you hears me and he who rejects you rejects me and he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So we see the same pattern, right? God comes to us through Jesus and Jesus comes to us through his apostles and disciples. By the gift of the Holy Spirit, this communication continues to take place. So that's the first. Jesus' teaching continues through his apostles, through the church. Number two, Jesus' forgiveness of sins continues through the church. In Mark 2, Jesus with a paralytic says, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees get mad. Who but God alone can forgive sins? And Jesus says that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, rise and walk, take up your mat. God alone can forgive sins. Jesus emphasizes that he alone as the son of God incarnate can forgive sins. Okay, that makes sense. Now then, Jesus does very weird things. 
In Matthew 16, he says to Peter, whoever sins you forgive are forgiven, and whoever sins are not for, you do not forgive are not forgiven. And then when he rises from the dead and meets all the apostles and breathes on them the Holy Spirit in John 20, he says, right, whoever sins you forgive are forgiven, and whatever sins you do not forgive are not forgiven. Right? The power that the Pharisees were shocked to see in Jesus as the Son of Man, he gives to the apostles. They have the power, not on their own, but the power that God alone can comes through them. And then finally, we have the image of Jesus as shepherd. In Ezekiel, it's very clear God alone is the shepherd. But we know Jesus in John 10 says that he is the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. Jesus claims for himself God's role as the shepherd of Israel. And then what does he do to Peter at the end of John? He says, right, Simon, do you love me more than these? Do you love me? This is after Jesus, Peter had denied him three times. But he says, tend my sheep, right, feed my lambs. Peter, you be the shepherd. So this idea that Jesus' teachings, his forgiveness, and his shepherding are communicated through the apostles first through the church. Now, do you think I'm being overly idealistic? Okay, that's fine, but what about when the popes in the Middle Ages have all this money and corruption or bishops today are, you know, living scandalous lives? Should we then leave the church? Well, what I would like to do is suggest for you an image. Imagine you're in a small town near Galilee, right? You're in a small little village and you have Judas and Thaddeus come by one day. They come for a couple weeks they preach and they say the kingdom of God is at hand. This man, Jesus of Nazareth, is God's Messiah. The kingdom of God is coming. And you're like, wow, this is really, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe this is it. And you begin to really maybe believe. And then all of a sudden, Passover comes and you realize that this man that they were talking about, Jesus of Nazareth, has been put to death. And then you discover that it was Judas, the apostle, that came to tell you about him, who was the one who betrayed him. What do you do? Do you reject Jesus because of Judas? We're so used to the story, we don't even hear the scandal of it. We're just like, oh yeah, yeah, he's, we know he's a bad guy. Right? That's a horrible betrayal. But the question is, Am I then going to join the betrayer in also walking away from his Messiah? Or am I going to say that the truth of the Messiah came through one of the most broken human instruments in history? If I learned about Jesus through Judas, I hope that I would have the strength and the grace to hear Jesus, not Judas. So this is what I would uh, suggest that when we think about the church and fundamentally recognize Paul invites us to the obedience of faith. Faith is a free choice to believe what God has revealed, but it also is an obedience. It creates a new mode of life by which we learn to listen to God's truth more than our own truth. We let go of our own stories and listen to God's stories. Okay, another question we take up is, how can the blood of Christ be good news? Now, I don't know if you've heard these studies that show about like 60 to 70% of Catholics, even those who attend mass, do not believe that the Eucharist is truly the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Right. Um, now, in some ways, this is a heart-wrenching statistic. It's, it's, a, it's a sad story, right? But what I would suggest is that part of the reason why people don't believe 
that it's the blood of Christ is because they don't believe in the blood of Christ. They really don't know what that means. The blood of Christ is rather strange. It's weird that the blood of another man would somehow make me right. Why would that be? So what are some ways in a way that we could try to understand what this means? And it's fascinating. I think at least probably about, we, I counted about eight to 10 different ways in which whenever the New Testament talks about we have redemption, it often says through his blood, in his blood, by his blood. Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace he has lavished upon us. So through his blood, we have redemption and forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And in many ways today, I think we see people who don't experience redemption, forgiveness of sins, where they genuinely feel no shame anymore to genuinely have the forgiveness of sins means we have no shame left. There's a story of St. John um, Vianney, who one day, he was uh, the curé ours uh, in a small little village of ours in France. And he would, uh, anyways, a famous confessor, people would come to him. And one time he saw all these, he had this vision of all these devils talking to all these penitents. He goes, what are you doing here in my church? And he, they, they say to him, basically, we are trying to give back to all these people shame so they won't confess their sins. The same shame we took away from them when they were sinning. In the Bible, it's Satan is, the word Satan means the accuser, the one who accuses. It is only Satan who is the accuser in the Bible. Jesus is the paraclete and he's going to send another paraclete the paraclete is an advocate. So it is really, it's the, right, it's the dark force in the world and in us that says shame on you. Christ comes in the world to say shame off you. Do we really experience that today? And I think many people do not. I think one way of inviting people to consider the Christian faith more seriously is just ask, is there anything of which you're ashamed of that you can't let go of? If you can answer that question, then in a way you're prepared to think about what it would mean for Christ to take that shame off of you. I think sometimes when we talk about forgiveness of sins, I think most people don't think they sin. They think other people do, but not themselves. So, right, it's hard to kind of connect with. But when we think about shame, I think we still have this existential feeling. And to think of that being removed from us is pretty powerful. Now, let's look then at the notion of blood and sacrifice. Sacrifices. Today in our society, we recognize people who will make great sacrifices for athletic goals, for professional goals, right? But nonetheless, let's think about sacrifice to make something right, right? Uh, Ryan introduced me. Okay, so let's just say, you know, it turns out I stole his iPhone. Um, you know, mine was broken. I decided I stole. I have you know, a little fancy way to figure out his passcode or whatever. Um, well, Okay, at some point, I'm gonna have to make the sacrifice of giving that back to him, right? Now let's just say, okay, well, Ryan has a little dog and um, so I'm out taking it for a walk and I'm on my phone and I'm not watching it. The dog walks over, well, we're in Florida and it gets eaten by an alligator. This happens occasionally, it's kind of sad. Um, 
but uh, adults very rarely, just occasionally little chihuahuas and stuff. But so anyway, so then what, how do I make up that? I can't just, do I just go buy him a new dog? What if it's something worse than a dog? What if it were a child? How do you make up what's been genuinely broken? What if I've lied to my wife? What if I've lied to God? What if I've lied to others? What if I've just, how do I make those things right? Well, to a certain extent, what we realize is that nothing we could ever really do is going to make those things right. Um, and ultimately, one of the worst things is that we're part of the problem. It's our own ego that's part of the problem. And our own ego can never make a sacrifice because then I'm the one doing it. Look at me. So on the cross, Christ sacrifices everything. John will say of Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Why is Jesus the Lamb of God? How does he take away the sins of the world? Because on the cross, he gives up his freedom, his health, his clothes, his mother, his disciples, any chance he has at any kind of professional accomplishments. Now, you may think, well, you know, but probably Jesus wanted to be, you know, maybe he could go back to Nazareth one more time and win those people over one more time with the Pharisees and maybe he would convince them. Give me another year, Lord, with these apostles. They're nincom, right? You know, they're, they're just not, they're, they're, they're not ready. But he had to surrender all of his desires. He made the sacrifice that we can never make. So on the cross, when Jesus really sheds his blood out of love for us and love for the Father, he makes the sacrifice perfectly of a human will to the divine will. So that's the sacrifice we need to make, but we can never make it. Christ worships the Father perfectly in his love, and he makes it possible for us to do so. Basically, in a way, it's like if we're really sick, we need a blood transfusion. But the sickness we have is one of an ego. So we need the blood of Christ to flow in our veins, which is why we're baptized into his death and we receive his body and blood under the Eucharist. So we share then in Christ's perfect yes to God, his sacrifice of all of our imperfections of human life, especially in faith, baptism, and Eucharist. As I said, we're baptized into his death. In our faith, Paul will speak of faith in Philippians 2 as the sacrificial offering of your faith. How could faith be a sacrifice? Because in faith, we begin to say, look, all of my own attempts to figure out my life on my own and to fix my life on my own and to fix other people's lives on my own have failed. I raise the white flag. I surrender. I believe in what you say and what you have done. That's in a way what we do in faith. And then finally, then we get to the Eucharist. So in the Eucharist is our deepest participation in this. So Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 10, is not the bread and wine we share at Mass a participation in the blood of Christ? So that's a way in which I think we really have to put again the blood of Jesus in the Eucharist back within a language that is intelligible, a story that is meaningful, and answers that are responding to our questions. Now, two more questions I want to take up are 
one, why would God hold our faults against us? Uh, and here, I think there's an idea that why would God, who's kind of busy running the universe in people's mind, this is not true, God's not busy, right? But God's busy running the universe. Why does he care what I do on a Friday night or on a Sunday morning? And there's a study by a guy named Christian Smith who came up with a term that says, people kind of under 40 today have this idea of moral therapeutic deism. Basically, God's not really that involved. He's a deistic God. He's separate. But he, it's morally therapeutic. Basically, God's there to help me. And he's not too demanding. Most people are good. Most people go to heaven. Right? It's this just basic idea. And he even says that Catholic teens show greater moral laxity, as he puts it, than other Christian teens. Um, so in a way, why does God care about our sins? Do we? Is this true? And I think in some ways, what I would like to suggest kind of in briefly is that when we think about our own sins, they're not that interesting. But when we think about other people, as I said, we can often become more aware of their sins. And there's a reason for that. Sin creates a blindness to our own sin. In the story of David in the Old Testament, we see this so beautifully, right? David is a man of God, a man after God's own heart. He kills Goliath because he's willing to just trust in everything in God. And then later... Of course, he has a great kingdom and he decides who wants to go off the battle. I'm just going to stay home while my soldiers go off. And he sees Bathsheba. He commits adultery with her. He has her husband killed. Right. All these different things. He becomes an adulterer and a murderer. And he thinks everything is fine with the world. So Nathan, the prophet, comes to him and tells him a story of a man who has thousands of sheep and a poor man who has one little ewe lamb. He says he would even sleep with the ewe lamb in his bed. Personally, I'm not into that. I think it's a little awkward. I don't even know they're like, I'm not even a fan of dogs sleeping in bed and you can actually potty train them. I don't have much hope for lambs. Uh, but anyway, so the rich man, he tells the story. The rich man has a, has a banquet coming over. So he takes the poor man's ewe lamb and he kills it, slaughters it, cooks it up for dinner. David says, it's horrible. He says, that man should die. He can see the other person's sin while he can't see his old. Nathan says to him, you are the man. And probably the most miraculous thing in the entire Old Testament, which if there's any miracle in the Old Testament that you shouldn't believe, it's that one. That David actually heard that and said, right, against you, you alone, O Lord, have I sinned. David heard the prophet Nathan saying, you are the man, and he recognized his own sin. Just imagine if you've ever tried to confront someone in their sin. How often have they said, oh, thank you. And if someone ever has said "You to you, oh, here, you've been sinning. Like, oh, thank you. Right. The greatest miracle is really our ability to recognize this. And by the way, Augustine and Aquinas will say that the justification of the sinner, the return of the sinner to a state of grace is a greater miracle than the creation of the world. So what we see in the Old Testament is it turns out not only is David, but all of humanity is in exile. That's really what we learn. All of humanity is in exile from the garden. We're somehow wounded and broken and in a state of relationships that is not healthy, not original. It's fascinating. If you look at the Bible compared to other creation myths, most other creation stories begin in violence. By the way, I think you can even see this in Marx. What's the history of the world determined by? Class warfare. 
violence is original. So we live in a violent world. In the Bible, violence comes in Genesis 4, right, when Cain kills Abel. So we learn that the world is actually good, but it's fallen under a wound, a curse. Something is now no longer right. So we learn in a way that we need to somehow be put right with God because somehow now we're out of sync. Jesus will talk about this when he talks about marriage. And he says, in the beginning, it was not so. If you want to understand marriage, don't look to the culture. Don't look to your own ideas. Look to the creation account. In the beginning, it was not so. So we want to understand this idea that there are two key paradoxical truths in the gospel. Number one, in ourselves, in our own hearts, we are much worse than we ever want to admit. And number two, in Christ, we are much more loved by God than we could ever imagine. This is the deep mystery of justification, that God, our sins are somehow need to be made right with God and that God justifies us so we can give up our attempts at self-justification. Jesus, when he talks about this, by the way, in his own ministries in Luke 15, tells these beautiful stories of the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son, right? When the man finds the one sheep, the 99th day, he rejoices over the one that he has found. When the woman who lose, has nine and loses the one coin, she rejoices when she finds the one. The father rejoices when the prodigal son comes home, right? We are those lost sheep, those lost coins, those lost sons, right? And God delights in welcoming us home when we recognize that we need to be reconciled to God. Last topic I want to bring up tonight is why is the church so strict about sex, right? Many people today find the church's teachings on sexuality either annoying or bigoted, right? Just downright offensive and mean. So how do we understand this kind of teachings of the church in the way the Bible puts them together? And I want to suggest there are three ways that we can think about this. First, is the Bible always emphasizes the original goodness of marriage and sexuality, right? In the very garden, there is basically a wedding. Adam and Eve get married. And he says, right, for this reason, a man shall leave his family and cleave to his wife so that the two shall become one. So marriage is good. It's in the garden. God calls people to be blessed uh, or blesses them and um to be fruitful and multiply. But nonetheless, the Bible is also aware that there are many, many corrupt and abusive sexual practices. So in Leviticus 20, the Bible condemns incest. How wonderful, right? That the Bible says that you, you cannot abuse sexually those over whom you have power and those with whom you have intimate contact, namely members of the family. It's actually kind of shocking if you ever read Leviticus 20, almost every different relationship you can imagine, neither your daughter, nor your daughter's daughter, nor your wife's daughter, nor your sister's daughter, nor any, well, any, just almost every combination. Now, on the one hand, that's, of course, a sad sign that human history has often been rather broken and abusive and sexuality 
in its state right now as it exists in the world is not healthy. Our own sexual desires, if we simply follow them, they will lead us astray. There is a deeper desire within that can lead us to God even, right? And can be redeemed. But I think we just have to ask ourselves, right? Is, in a way, and if we look at just, just imagine uh, the traffic on the internet, you know, how much of it is healthy and how much of it shows that maybe there's something about our sexual desires that is actually not healthy and not wholesome and leading to, right, abuse and destruction of another, not only the objectification of another person, but even the destruction. So this is what I would suggest, right? It's good, but now it's a disorder. But that's not where the story ends. The third point, right, is that first, in the Old Testament, we have the teachings about how to live, right? Do not commit adultery. Do not covet your neighbor's wife. And then Christ comes into the midst of it and he says, right, to the woman caught in adultery, neither do I condemn you. So God's message of mercy, those who have been forgiven, forgive more. So it's the prostitutes and the tax collectors, the repentant ones that are entering the kingdom of heaven. Paul also, right, will say that we can glorify God with our body. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Our bodies are not evil. Um, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, what we do with our bodies matter. But it's always in this aspect of mercy, reaching out to the miserable. God's mercy gives them the ability to redirect, right, to recover, to heal, and then finally, there's a beautiful image of um, marriage on a mission with Priscilla and Aquila, uh, where we see kind of in the New Testament, this call to virginity aligned with this call to marriage, right? Marriage is good, right? Celibacy is good, right? The church needs people who are willing to forego marriage for the sake of the kingdom, but also people who will practice marriage within the kingdom, within the coming kingdom. Paul, who's celibate, runs all around uh, spreading the gospel in the Mediterranean. But he, in four different letters, he speaks about the church that meets in the house of Prisca and Aquila. Right? This Roman Jewish couple that got exiled from Rome, Paul meets them because they're tent makers. Right? So in a certain sense, we see this beautiful thing where the church is probably the only, one of the few things that actually blesses, of course, both celibacy virginity and marriage, right? But now restored. So uh, there are a lot of other topics we could go over, um, but I want to close with just a few comments. Uh, we mentioned at the beginning this idea that the Bible is the language of God. When we learn it, it's the story of God and it offers answers to our questions. And maybe I just want to ask you on a scale of one to 10, how much meaning and truth do you draw from the Bible? How much do you see the Bible as an intelligible language, as a true story, and as meaningful answers? You don't have to raise your hand, but on a scale of one to 10, where would you put yourself? Maybe where was it at the beginning of the talk? Where is it now? And if you could do something that might increase that number by one today, think about the difference that could make for your own, uh, the meaning that you draw from scripture over the next uh, over the uh, over a, a you know the next many uh, sorry many days uh, etc over the next week month year etc 
And I want to suggest maybe three practices that you can consider. First, I really encourage you, and this is something I think that's very unusual, but I think is very important, is consider making an act of faith in the Bible as the revealed word of God. Do we genuinely believe that God is speaking to us in our current immediate situation through the scripture, with the tradition, with the church? Right? Ask that. And if you struggle, ask for the light of the Holy Spirit to help you. If you don't want to, at least ask to want to want to. Secondly, listen to the Bible as proclaimed by the church. Right? The church puts us in on Sundays um, right, the gospel with the Psalms, with the reading from the New Testament, with the reading from the Old Testament. Do we learn about it? Do we know it? Maybe get a, a group together, get a study buddy, uh, somebody where we learn to see these things. There are great podcasts on these topics as well, right? When we do that, we're saying, I believe in your story more than the story I tell myself. And then third, I would suggest people to read the Bible on their own. And in many ways, I would say less is more. Picking out one psalm that you read every day, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's more important in a way to know the shepherd than it is to know the psalm. But you know what? We don't get to know the shepherd without knowing the psalm. It's a psalm who tells us that the Lord is our shepherd. Psalm 51, uh, right? Against you, you alone have I sinned. Um, there's so many good things, the Gospels, but beginning just to make a, a slow habit of reading with an idea of learning and answer, having the questions we have in the deepest of our hearts being answered. Since this is a talk by at, with the Thomistic Institute, I should say a word about Thomas. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, we often know that he wrote the Summa Theologiae, which was his great work of theology, but his job was to be a master of the sacred page, right? His job as a professor, he gave biblical commentaries on John, Isaiah, Job, all of the Pauline epistles, Matthew, right? This is what he did. And he would consider sacred scripture as equivalent to sacred doctrine. All the teachings that he thought we needed to know to understand how God has revealed his love and his plan for us came through scripture. So at the end of this, I'd like to say with John Paul II, perhaps now we might say the Bible is this vision of exceptional philosophical density, right? It's true. With Benedict, perhaps we too might say, I trust in the gospels. And perhaps with Pope Francis, we too might read the Bible prayerfully and so listen to the voice of the master. It is the story that God speaks to you and to me. May we learn to listen to the voice of the master as he tells it to us over and over. I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Hi, my name is Rami. Um, something that you touched on at the beginning um, was um, the fact that a lot of people are leaving the faith, um, whether it's Catholic or Protestant. But I was yeah. wondering if you could speak on like maybe why why do you think that people are specifically leaving the Catholic faith? 
Um, I don't. I mean, it could be out of well. There's a, a yeah. A short version would be that I think the success of the church is its um, failure in a way. And what I mean by that is because the church has been successful, there are you know like over a billion Catholics in the world. Well, that's just you know if you have a you know if you have a football team of 300 people, they're probably not going to all be good football players, right? Um, so if you have a billion Catholics in the world, that also means you have a lot of problems. You have a lot of people in the world that are probably not always living a good life. And in a certain sense, what Protestantism says is it says, don't look at us, just look at Jesus. Um, and therefore, it's kind of like you just kind of keep finding a new Protestant church. Well, that Protestant church is bad. So we find another one. And, um, and you know, when I came back to my faith, I was an atheist. I, I walked away from the church as a young person and came back. And so I also have a great love for Protestants and their love of scripture and uh, and Christ. Um, but when I, I also eventually came back to the church, but so I feel like in a certain sense, the problem with the church is you have 2000 years of baggage and you have a billion Catholics in the world. So you see lots of bad examples. And so I think it's really the success of the church that it's still historically recognizable, the same thing. It's like, if you ask, ask Amazon, try this sometime, or no, Alexa, you ask Alexa, not Amazon, you ask Alexa, like who started the Lutheran church? Martin Luther. Right. Who started the Catholic Church? Jesus Christ. I mean, the problem is because the Catholic Church has been around for 2000 years and is all over the globe as one recognizable church. So when any bishop anywhere in the world who's a Catholic does something wrong, we can blame it on the church. So I think that's the problem in a way. But I think in a certain sense, that's the key thing is we have to recognize we have to not look at the members Right? But we have to look at the person behind the members, right? It's not the members, it's the story. So that, in a way, I think is partly why. And I think whether or not it's like people, you know, I, I don't know what people, you know, whether or not people, you know, are like, oh, you know, the Inquisition or, you know, the Crusades or they may know nothing about history except that. Right. And they, of course, don't know that much about those events to really think about them intelligently or. They know that, you know, gosh, these bishops or priests in certain areas, you know, committed horrible, scandalous act, uh, atrocities, really, by abusing young people. I mean, right. Which is true. But, you know, but it's also, you know, but also mother in a certain sense, like, but who do you think's hurt by that more? I mean, in a certain sense, it's like that, that, you know, it's like Christ has to suffer through those abuses. Right. But you remember, those are human beings that in a way are right broken, deceitful, because Christ said that there would be, right, wolves in sheep's clothing. So this is where I think we just really have to challenge ourselves, like, to be a Catholic in a way means we're, we're just, like, we're not really interested in the church, kind of. We're interested in Jesus. It just turns out we believe that Jesus comes to us through the church, right? Um, you know, so I feel like it's that that theme of just um, having that deep belief. But I feel like that's part of the challenge. I have, I have a you know a family member, a young family member who's in high school, uh, not immediate family, but you know she says she's she's okay telling people she believes in Jesus, but not in the church because all her friends make fun of her because they just think the church is bad. You know, so it's like this is hard. You got to try to help people recognize that we don't want to look at the church; we want to look with the church at Jesus. Right. When you're at mass, it's like, don't look at the people. Don't look at the priest. Look at God who's coming to you and whom we go to. How would you support 
how do you biblically support concepts that are not directly referenced in the Bible, such as purgatory? Well, I would say that, so it, 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 it's, there, there are different questions there, right? Um, the key point of this book um, is not primarily trying to kind of argue the Bible against, say, non-Catholic Christians or Protestants. This is really trying to argue it against Catholics who are walking away from the faith. So that's the primary point there, who just think that the church is no longer, the Bible's old and irrelevant, so the church should get with the times, right? Probably literally with the New York Times, right? So um, so that's the focus of this book. So on those other questions, what I would say is that we want to think about the people who wrote the Bible were the early apostles and their collaborators, and they then formed bishops, and we know this in the second century in Ignatius of Antioch, who died in 107. So for instance, Ignatius of Antioch was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John. Well, Ignatius of Antioch will talk about the idea that the, you know, he talks about certain heretics that don't believe that the Eucharist becomes the body and blood of Jesus Christ. So we might say, well, there's some compelling evidence to believe maybe that what Jesus says in John 6 might be more than merely symbolic. Um, so I think sometimes it's reading it within a whole. Um, you know, the issue of purgatory, I think, has become more kind of um, uh, more, and it, it became kind of a touchstone really because of Luther's criticisms of some of the uh, practices surrounding indulgences uh, even C.S. Lewis, who is a famous Protestant, he did not become Catholic, but as an Anglican, he believed in Luther, he believed in purgatory. Um, so this idea that really there might be some kind of pure, further purification that may go forward. So I think in my mind, when we put it within the whole, I mean, there you know there are a couple passages, right? Maccabees in the Old Testament, First First uh, Corinthians three fifteen, we're going to be purified through fire, and gold will stand, and wood will not. You know, so I think we can see harmonies there. Uh, but I think partly the idea is that what we want to see is that the fundamental things the apostles went around doing was saying that this man whom you killed, right, rose again, and he is Lord, and he sent us the Holy Spirit. So that if you believe in his name and are baptized, you can receive the Holy Spirit and find forgiveness. And in the, in the New Testament, you have letters confirming that. And then you have biographies of Jesus showing who this Jesus is that whose resurrection grants us redemption. So scriptures are the word of God, but the idea that they would be meant to teach us like, or that we would find every answer to the, in them alone without reading them in the tradition might be kind of hard. And I think sometimes you can see that people who try to do that, even though the New Testament's not that long, um, a lot of different groups will disagree about what the Bible means. So I know there's not like a lot of like biblical texts on like the Immaculate Conception and all that. How would you like explain that like more in depth, basically? So the Immaculate Conception, this is the idea that um, Mary was conceived without sin. So what I would suggest is there are a few themes to begin with. One is the idea that in, in part, Mary's a new Eve figure. The early church sees Mary as a new Eve, just as Adam and Eve in the Old Testament uh, were given humanity 
human nature, but it, they broke it. They wounded it. So they passed on to us a nature that's been deprived of grace. So to a certain extent, Christ and Mary in the New Testament are passing on to us a new nature. So if Mary is going to be the new Eve, then she also has to be in that state like Eve where she can say yes to God. And if she had our wounded nature, she couldn't, right? She could only say yes to God, but it would still be a, it would be an imperfect yes, right? The moment we say yes to God, we're also kind of proud of the fact that we're saying yes to God, which is like, ugh, I hate that, right? Like, oh, here I am being humble again. It's just not a good thing, right? So this is, so that Mary's yes to God, because it really is the, from her that Christ takes his human nature um, and therefore the human nature that he receives. It's not that Christ couldn't have done it by himself. That's not the point, so to speak, but it's so much more fitting that Augustine will say, right, that God created us without us, but he won't redeem us without us. So he, Mary was able to say yes in the way that Eve said no, and therefore begins the real recreation so that's one big picture in terms of the overall story. The other thing is to maybe look at Mary uh, when the angel Gabriel says, hail, full of grace. He calls her full of grace. So she seems to be, well, full of grace, which would seem to be not like us. Doesn't mean she had to be necessarily immaculately conceived, but it does mean it's fitting that at some point she was purified of all sin, so she could be called full of grace. And you can even think, and sometimes in the Old Testament, some of the visions of the ark, the ark was utterly holy. No one touched the ark, right? If you touched, you know, you didn't like go and like, if you were drinking a beer, you didn't like set your beer down on the ark, right? You know, like, it's like, you don't go up at church and just set your backpack down on the altar, right? At least you ought not to, right? I'm not saying you're like, but you know, it's like you treat these things well, but in the Old Testament, the ark was like, holy, holy. It was set aside. You didn't touch it. If you touched it, you know, basically, you know, you, 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 you died. It was like, that was how holy the ark was because that was where God dwelled. And in the ark was the word of God, the 10 commandments, the staff of God and the manna. Well, what's in Mary? The word of God, the law of God and the bread of God in Jesus Christ. So Mary's kind of like the, Ark of the Covenant in which Jesus dwells. So in that sense, we see her as maybe somehow, if, the, if a piece of wood in the Old Testament could be holy, perhaps a person in the New Testament could be holy. Um, so there, there, there are other examples, but those are just a few things where if we see Mary again with a few of the biblical references in the New Testament, but then also the way they relate to things in the Old I think it can be helpful. Um, when talking, I think just like about, with Catholics, even about the Eucharist, I think without realizing there's often a stance of like, like a mindset of consubstantiation mm. and not transubstantiation. Mm -hmm. So like, how do we kind of go about those conversations? Because even when I try to like explain transubstantiation, I realize it's hard to do it without having to sure. Sure. So, well, I think the one thing that I find helpful, I think Pascal said something like this. Pascal's writing kind of 100 years after the Protestant Reformation, but very much of a, you know, early modern figure. He said, basically, it's like, well, if you believe that God created the world and that he rose from the dead, 
like how can you have a problem with the with the Eucharist? So I do think it's important to remember, like, okay, whatever we're talking about here in the Eucharist, let's just start first. Do we believe that Jesus rose from the dead? I mean, if you don't believe in the Eucharist, but you believe that you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, then let's talk about did Jesus rise from the dead, right? If Jesus rose from the dead in some kind of physical way and his body walked through doors and he ate, we begin to realize we don't really know what this is like. Um, but it's some kind of foreshadowing of something like the new heavens and the new earth that God promises us. For heaven is not kind of soulless or bodiless souls floating on clouds, but it's going to be a bodily resurrection. So Jesus resurrects bodily and then ascends into heaven. So whatever we see going on there, we see some kind of thing that is real and strange. So the point is, if we begin there, then the fact that the Eucharist is, well, real and strange it's kind of like, okay, well, I've already admitted that. So I feel like that's kind of the first thing. So this can be the genuine body of Christ, but it's also the body of Christ. It's not the body of Christ that like walked around or was in Mary's womb. It's the body of Christ that had risen and walked through doors. So somehow it has the capacity to be everywhere at once. So that's the first idea, I would say. And then the goal, then the other thing that I find helpful is at the beginning, God says, let there be light, and there is light. He creates by his word. That's all he does. Let there be light, and there is light. He creates by his word. So when he then later says, this is my body, it is his body. This is my blood. The same person is speaking, right? The son through whom all things were created, as the creed says, and as Hebrews says, is the same son who is now saying, this is my, so his words are creative. They're not merely changing as though he's like, he's, he's creating, so to speak, under the form of bread and wine, the presence of his body. So, so those, at least in my mind, are, are then helpful somehow in sense we can say, yes, it is fully and truly the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. And at the same time, another thing I also remember is that, like, in a certain sense, the blood and the body and blood of Jesus aren't that interesting. I mean, be careful here. I'm, I'm just, like, <laughs> why do I care about the body and blood of Jesus Christ? Is because they're attached to the soul and divinity. What, what I need is, in a way, to be connected back to God. That's what I need. And so, when I receive the body and blood of Jesus Christ, I am also receiving the body, blood, soul, and divinity, and I need to get back to God. So the reason, right, why I love Jesus is not just because he's a man, but because he is the son of God and allows me to become the son of God. And the reason why I love the Eucharist, because, and, and Ignatius, by the way, in 107, will call it the bread of God. So, you know, again, so it's like, though in that sense, we're talking about the, the resurrected flesh here is connected to, in a way that we can't imagine, of course, the divinity Right, which is why then when I receive it, I'm healed. It becomes right the, the what they would call viaticum, this kind of um, food for the journey. It's probably the best way we could translate it. So this food for the journey, because I'm eating now that which I want to have at the end of my journey. It's like if you're running a marathon and you actually could somehow be finishing the race now while you're at mile 11 or at mile 20, 
you know, we can't do it in time, but God can do it in his, in, in his eternity. So every time we have that Eucharistic, we're having that kind of encounter with God. And then in that sense, it's kind of just, in my mind, fitting that it would genuinely be what he claims it to be, right? That his body and his blood are genuinely salvific. So how do you see the sacrifice of Christ yeah. as being incredibly different from the sacrifice of Martyrs, for example. So mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, there's something powerful about that, um, right? Christ weeps in the garden. And it's almost like sometimes some of the martyrs don't even weep. It's kind of weird. Um, it's So what's going on there? Well, Christ, in a way, the martyrs are dying really for Christ. Okay. Christ, and the catechism says this, I think it's like 621, I could be wrong by the way, So, but somewhere around there it says that Christ, when Christ dies, he sees each one of us individually. That means both. Number one is that our individual sins put Jesus on the cross, and also he loves us so much that he died for us anyway. So he loves each of us individually. So like, and Galatians will say this, right? Christ gave himself for me. So on the cross, in the garden, Jesus is looking at me and he's kind of thinking about the whole weight of all the sins of the entire world. And so in his offering, he's instituting the new covenant, right? Not the covenant that was done in the Old Testament with animals, with God, right? The sacrifice of animals, but this new covenant, which will be offered in his own basically charity that pours itself out in love. We think about what, what when we most see love in our world today, we see it typically in those who are willing to sacrifice themselves for others. So Christ shows that he loves himself. God loved the world so much, right? He gives only begotten son that all who believe in him should not perish. So, so that seems, that's the defining moment of history. Then the martyrs are bearing witness to that truth that Jesus Christ is Lord, not Caesar, right? That Jesus Christ is the truth. So therefore, Jesus' sacrifice really becomes the defining event of really all human history, which is why the scriptures will speak about as the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. And then that gives the martyrs the strength to be witnesses, right? A martyr is a witness to what Christ has done. Well, yeah, give a big round of applause. By the way, I'm happy to have the little children here tonight. I not only have three adult sons, I even have a granddaughter. And if you stay afterwards, um, I'll be happy to show you a picture. Uh, I even have a couple little pictures of, of me reading her, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, when she was two days old. So... <laughs>